0: Chapters thirty-nine and forty of When Shadows Die by E. D. E. and Southworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter thirty-nine: A Clouded Honeymoon. We went down to Liverpool and sailed for America, to commence our new life on your Maryland plantation. But oh, Abel, with a burden of sorrow and remorse on my heart and conscience, which has oppressed and darkened all my days. In the first winter of our marriage news came to us of my father's death, and we mourned him deeply, as you know. Added to grief for his loss was anxiety for the fate of the child he had promised to adopt and educate. No news came to me of my boy. I knew not even if the quarterly payments had been kept up. When we went to Baltimore, however, to buy my mourning outfit, I took the opportunity to send a bill of exchange for a hundred pounds to Mary Chester on account, and asked her to send me news of the boy, and to direct her letter to Bryantown, to which place I intended to go, and I did go at intervals, in hope to find a letter, but none ever came. In the spring I received a terrible shock. Report came that a schooner had been wrecked on the shore, and that but one life had been saved, the life of a child who had been washed up on the sands and found there living. This child, I heard, was at the house of Miss Bayard, who was taking care of him, I went, as everybody went, from curiosity to see the little waif. There happened to be no visitor at the house when I entered Miss Baird's parlor. She was talkative, as usual, and told me all about the wreck and rescue as it is known to you and to all that community. And she took me into the bedroom adjoining the parlor to look upon the sleeping boy. There he lay upon the clean patchwork quilt, crosswise upon the bed, his flaxen head upon the snowy pillow, a gray woolen shawl spread over him. I approached and stooped to look at his face. Heaven of heavens! Think, think what I must have felt on recognizing my own child. Surprise, delight, wonder, terror. All shook me in turns as I gazed. Eh, ma'am, I don't wonder it gives you a turn. It did me, I tell you, the good woman whispered as she stood beside me. In a tumult of emotion, I withdrew from the room. I was afraid the child might open his eyes and see me and I knew as surely as I had recognized him would the little one remember me and call me by my name as soon as he should set eyes upon me. I was afraid to stay any longer or to ask any more questions, lest I should in some manner betray myself. I took leave of Miss Bayard and left the house. The rescued child was the talk of the county for the whole season. Everyone wondered and speculated as to the boy's birth and social position, but no one could decide upon it, for there was no mark on the nightdress in which the little one had been found in a few days, I heard that you, my beloved and honored husband, you of all men, had taken upon yourself the cost of the child's maintenance and education that you had engaged to pay Miss Bayard a liberal quarterly allowance for her care of the boy and to send him to school as soon as he should be old enough to go. Then, when I heard this, my better angel urged me to confide in you to confess the truth and throw myself upon your mercy the mercy of the truest, noblest, tenderest heart that ever beat. But I dared not do it. The longer I had kept my secret from you, the harder it was to tell. I feared that you would ask me why I had not told you this before our marriage. I feared that you might even part with me. And the longer I had lived with you, the more I loved you. The harder was the thought of parting from you. I could not risk the loss, even though to retain your love seemed almost a theft. I did not tell you, nor did I show any sympathy in your care of the friendless child. I did not go near my boy, lest he should recognize and innocently betray me. So weeks passed into months, and months passed into years. Children came to us and drew our hearts even more closely together, if that were possible, than they had been before. But though I loved our little girls as fondly as ever mother did, yet I loved them no more than I loved the dear boy whom I dared not acknowledge or even look upon. It was not until Roland was at school, and time and change of fashion in clothing and hairdressing had made such alteration in my appearance, that I judged it safe to do so. I first saw my son face to face, and shook hands with him. How he stared at me! His mind evidently startled and perplexed, by the phantom of a remembrance he could not fix or define. After that I saw him often, and was able to befriend him, but I was often troubled by the look of perplexity in the boy's eyes when they met mine. After a while, however, this shade of memory faded quite away. Years passed, and the old sorrow also seemed to have gone like some morning cloud of spring, leaving scarcely a trace behind. It was on that visit to Niagara Falls, now nearly seven years ago, when I met in the parlor of the hotel the one man I dreaded more than all men or all devils, Angus Anglesea. I saw my danger as soon as our eyes met. I knew that, for the old repulse I had given him at Geneva, he would now take his revenge. Yet I tried to look him down, but I could not. You were by my side. I was obliged to present him to you. You had heard of Angus Anglesia from my father and from my brother, and had heard nothing but praise of the man from them. You gave him a warm welcome. You pressed him to come down and visit us at Mondrier. Afterward, to you alone, I protested against this visit with as much energy as I dared to use— "'for I could not explain to you why he ought not be our guest. "'But you thought me somewhat capricious, "'and declared that you could not withdraw an invitation once given. "'Then I appealed to him, to any little remnant of pride, honor, or delicacy that might remain somewhere in his depraved nature, "'not to accept your invitation, "'not to enter a house which his presence would desecrate. "'He laughed in my face. "'He told me that he had already accepted the invitation "'and that he meant to make the visit.' You know what followed. He came down with us to Mondrier. He cast his eyes upon our dear daughter, Odalite, and on her fortune. Not only on her American fortune, but on her English prospects. Ah, my poor Odalite! She was engaged to be married to her faithful lover, Leonidas Force, who was expected home on the Christmas of that year. And she was as true as truth to her love. She was not for a moment fascinated by the admiration of the brilliant stranger, as people said. SHE SACRIFICED HERSELF TO SAVE ME, AND IN SAVING ME, TO SAVE YOU AND HER SISTERS. DO YOU KNOW WHAT THAT SNAKE WHO HAD ENTERED OUR PARADISE THREATENED TO DO, IF HE WERE NOT BOUGHT OFF BY THE HAND AND FORTUNE AND PROSPECTS OF OUR DAUGHTER ODALITE? HE THREATENED TO PUBLISH MY SECRET TO THE WHOLE WORLD. AH, HOW I MOURNED THEN THAT I HAD NOT TOLD YOU THE SAD STORY BEFORE ACCEPTING YOUR OFFER OF MARRIAGE, AND LEFT YOU FREE TO WITHDRAW OR TO RENEW THAT OFFER. "'It was too late then. Every year that I had kept a story from you made it harder and more humiliating to tell. And he threatened to tell—not you, that would have been terrible enough—but to tell everybody, to tell the story in the bar-rooms of the country inns, at the gentlemen's wine-parties and oyster-suppers, and everywhere. He would leave our house, take up his lodgings at the calvert, and spread the venom over the whole community. That would have been fatal.' "'Abel, this story, as he would have told it, must have driven us all in dishonor from the neighborhood. "'I think it would have killed you. "'You were strong and brave, and could have borne much, everything but dishonor. "'That would have killed you. "'I know it would have driven me mad, and it would have blighted the lives of our children. "'I was nearly insane even then. "'Some woman, in such a position, would have committed suicide. "'But apart from its sinfulness, it would have been ineffectual in my case.' As if I had died, he would still have blackmailed Odalite. Some other woman in my position would have killed Anglesea. I knew that, and I knew that if ever man deserved death at a woman's hands, he did at mine. But I was not even tempted so ruthlessly to break the sacred laws of God. Nay, let me say here that weak, blind, and foolish as I have been, I have not only tried to keep, but I have kept those laws from my youth up. What is it then that I have confessed to you? Not a sin, not a fault but a secret that I have kept from you because I had not strength enough to tell you, or light enough to know you, or wisdom enough to confide in your wisdom. It was no sin of mine that my marriage was a deception practiced upon me, but it was a great wrong to you to keep the secret of that marriage. You know now the secret of my life, why I consented to sacrifice Odalite to that man, from whom she was saved as by a miracle. Is it a mockery to ask you to pardon this lifelong secret, Abel? I know that you will pardon as freely as God pardons. But when you have seen these lines, you may never afterward see me. Heaven knows. I have written the foregoing confession to put it away, lest death take me unaware, leaving me no time to tell the true story as I only can tell it. Washington, April 18th, 18, 18-blank. The time has come. I have learned some facts. The villain who spoiled my life, and would have spoiled my daughter's life, was not Angus Anglesea my brother's dearest friend, college mate, and fellow officer, but an impostor bearing his likeness and wearing his name, and now waiting trial, as a pirate and a slaver, and having for his mate and fellow prisoner, one whom you have known and cared for as Roland Bayard, but who is really Roland Glennon, my son. No, I cannot meet you. When you have read these lines, you will see me no more. Chapter 40 A Startling Encounter. When Abel Force had finished reading this manuscript, he sat with it in his hand, thoughtfully gazing at the paper, and almost involuntarily listening for any sound from the adjoining room, where his life lay in a very precarious condition. At last he folded up the parcel and put it into his breast-pocket, muttering to himself that he must keep it out of sight until he could get an opportunity to burn it. Then he softly left the room, and went and tapped gently at the door of his wife's chamber— "'The nurse opened the door. "'How is Mrs. Force?' he inquired. "'She is sleeping under the influence of an opiate. "'The doctor thinks that if she sleeps well through the night "'she will be very much better tomorrow morning. "'Thank heaven!' "'The nurse softly closed the door, "'and Mr. Force returned to the little room, "'where he lighted the gas, for it was growing dark, "'made some little improvements in his toilet, "'for it was dinner time, "'and then hurried downstairs, "'for he had eaten nothing since breakfast.' He opened the parlour door, and was surprised to find a group of many people gathered around his own party. Wynnette sprang out from them all to meet him. "'Oh, Papa, I have not seen you since early this morning. Where have you been? We had all begun to fear that you were a mysterious disappearance.' "'My dear, I have been closely engaged all day. Who are those with you?' inquired Mr. Force. "'Who? Who but your old friends and neighbours? Mrs. Dorothy Hedge, Miss Susanna Grandier, "'and Mr. Samuel Grandiere, "'Come, come and speak to them.' "'They here? "'Why, how did they find us out?' "'Joshua found them and brought them here, "'else they never would have found us out. "'And yet people say that dogs have no souls.' "'Mr. Force hurried to meet the friends from St. Mary's "'and warmly shook hands with them all. "'We are so sorry to hear that Mrs. Force is indisposed,' "'said Mrs. Hedge, when these greetings were over. "'She has had a severe nervous shock.' Such strokes must be epidemic among those who live amid war's alarms, you know, Mrs. Hedge. Yes, of course, but all war's alarms are not disastrous. What a glorious deed young Leonidas Force has done. I congratulate you on your nephew, Mr. Force. Thank you, madame. Will you take my arm down to dinner? There is the gong. The whole party arose and went down into the dining-room, and took their places at the table. The party filled up a large one. After dinner they returned to the drawing-room for a little while, and then the visitors from St. Mary's bade good-night, and, accompanied by Captain Grandiere and Rosemary Hedge, went away to take possession of their rooms at a boarding-house that had been found for them in E. Street. Mr. Force and Lord Enderby lighted a couple of cigars and walked out on the bright and busy avenue to smoke and stroll. Between the gas-lamps and the illuminated shop-windows the scene was almost as light as day and with its crowd of pedestrians as noisy as a fair up and down they strolled and smoked until tired of being jolted or as the earl put it walked over they turned up the west side of fifteenth street where the sidewalk was brilliantly lighted yet almost vacant of passengers here they walked and talked in the cool of the evening unconscious of a dark figure approaching them from the north end of the street whose advent was to have the most important effect on the destinies of several of our friends they were going to meet the form that was approaching them. Both looked up carelessly, and saw a tall, soldierly-looking man, who coming up held out his hand with an exclamation of surprise and pleasure. Enderby! The earl stared for a second, and then seized the offered hand, crying with delight. Anglesia! When did you arrive? This question was put in the same words, at the same time by both. But three days since, answered Lord Enderby, only this afternoon replied general anglesea. I have come to america to see your sister. Let me present you to my brother-in-law, mr force of Mondreer, Maryland, Mr. force, general anglesea, late of the East Indian service, the real Simon Pure, you understand, Abel. The two gentlemen thus introduced bowed deeply. You say you have come over to see my sister? inquired the earl. Yes, on very important business you may judge how important when I tell you that it has brought me across the ocean at such a time as this. My sister is at this time indisposed. I think it will be a day or two before she is capable of attending to any business. But here is her husband. Of course I am very happy to meet Mr. Force, and shall be ready, at his convenience, to enter upon this business. It concerns Lady Elfrida's first marriage." Now, if Mr. Force had not already learned the truth concerning that first marriage, I know not what might have been the consequences of this sudden announcement. As it was, Lady Elfrida's second husband, with great presence of mind, replied, "'Precisely. I shall be ready to attend to you as soon as you please.' As for Lord Enderby, who had never heard a word about his sister's first marriage, he was considerably startled, but with equal presence of mind, recovered himself, and said— If it is necessary that this matter should be entered upon this evening, we had better withdraw into apartments, we can scarcely discuss important business in the street. "'You are quite right, and I am at your service,' assented the General. "'But where shall we go? Privacy is hard to be had at any price in this overcrowded city. We have not a private sitting-room at our hotel.' "'Come with me, then,' said Anglesia. "'I have, by a fortunate chance, been able to secure a comfortable bedroom with a little box of a sitting-room adjoining.' "'A box of a sitting-room! What a boon! What a blessing in these times!' said the Earl, as he turned with the squire and the general to walk to the last-mentioned gentleman's hotel. Ten minutes later, they were all three seated around a small table, on which stood a bottle of sherry, some wine-glasses, and cigars. "'My business with Lady Elfrida,' began Anglesia, "'is to restore to her some documents that have been too long, indeed, in my possession.' though I did not really anticipate they would ever be called for, as they now appear to be, to confirm her son's claim to the estate of his uncle, Antonio Saviola. Her son? thought the earl to himself, but he said nothing. He only looked at Abel Force, whose face was quite impenetrable. I hope the young gentleman is living, and is quite well. Yes, thank you, my stepson is quite well, and a very fine young man altogether. The earl looked from one to the other— Here was a revelation. His sister had been twice married, and she had a living son by her first marriage. And Abel Force knew this. And he himself had never even suspected such a thing. Why had not he, her brother, her only living relative beside her husband and children, been told of this first marriage? Did his father know it, and conspire to keep the secret from him too? Did Anglesia also know it from the first, and confederate with all the other conspirators to keep the secret from him? "'the son, the brother, the bosom friend. "'It was very hard on him,' the injured earl reflected. "'In the meantime, the general had taken out "'from a rolled morocco case a few parchments, "'which he spread upon the table, "'pushing all the glasses together to make room. "'Then, missing some papers from among the others, "'he arose, and went into the adjoining chamber "'to look for it. "'Lord Underby seized the opportunity afforded "'by his temporary absence, "'to stoop and whisper to the squire.' "'This sudden news of my sister's first marriage "'has fallen like a thunderbolt upon me.' "'Has it?' inquired the squire, with forced calmness. "'I should think so. "'I had never dreamed of such a thing. "'Why was it kept a secret from me? "'Did my father know it?' "'Certainly.' "'My father knew it. "'Anglesia knew it. "'You knew it. "'Why was it kept secret from me?' "'My dear Enderby, "'because it seemed to your father necessary "'that it should be kept so,' "'soothingly replied the squire.' "'Was the marriage a discreditable one, then? "'No, it was not. "'Then why, in the name of heaven, "'could it not have been announced? "'My dear Enderby, "'secrecy is not always wrong and foolish. "'It is sometimes wise and right. "'It was so in this instance. "'And I may further promise to satisfy you of this in a few hours. "'When you married my sister, "'did you know that she had been married before, "'and that she had a living son by that first marriage?' "'Most certainly I did,' said Mr. Force, with emphasis.' And yet I remember, I swear that I remember, she signed her name to her marriage register with you, Elfrida Glennon. Hush, here comes Anglesia, said the squire, as the general entered the room. End of chapter 40